Really grateful to be with you this morning. Um, if you're new with us, welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, if you are not new with us, equally as glad that you are here. Um, we, as a church, are, are moving into um, a month of celebration that I'm pretty pumped about, actually. Um, and I don't express being pumped about things very well. Um, I'm kind of like one of those people whose like, emotional uh, deviation is very, very low. And so you have to look really, really hard to decide if I am actually excited or angry or frustrated about anything. But I am genuinely so excited uh, this month. Uh, we are celebrating as a church community four years of being Church of the City. Um, our birthday technically is the last weekend in January, but as all good celebrations go, we decided to actually expand that. And let's just like have a month of celebrating a birthday. It sounds like a lot more fun. And in fact, since we only get like one time every weekend uh, to celebrate, I think it makes a lot of sense for us to do it more than once. Now, you'll notice on the screen behind me that we're actually extending it clear into February. Don't tell anybody. Um, but we, uh, just the way the schedule worked out, I want to point a few things out to you so you're like, aware of what's going on um, in the coming weeks. Um, this week and next week, um, we're just kind of naming it. You know what? It's good. Uh, we've, God's been so faithful and something beautiful has, has emerged out of this church community that is growing uh, in its depth and in its potency and in the expression of God's goodness in Portland. Um, and as we prepare for the celebration times we get together, one of the things I want to steer towards very, very first, the top of the slide, is uh, in a few weeks, on the 20th, we are going to have a Q&A with um, Church of the City leaders. Now, that said, um, for some of you, this is absolutely terrifying. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn the lights up. We're going to have a microphone we can pass around. We're going to have a panel discussion of our, some of our leaders up here. And we, we really want to engage questions, um, as well as give a perspective on where we're going in 2019, what uh, the future looks like, what we sense God up to, but also really responding to what you're thinking, what you're curious about on any topic. It's wide, wide open. We might go from deep theology to, hey, are we really going to meet on Sundays? Why don't we try Tuesdays or something? Um, but that said, for the next couple of weeks, uh, we're inviting you on those white communication cards to jot down any question. And this is for those of you who predominantly are wanting not to pick up a microphone and talk into it in an open forum, like having a group of people around you. Um, you can jot down a question and we will do our absolute best to address it when we get to that particular week. So this week and next week, questions you have about the future, about what we believe, about who we are, about what's going on, anything is wide, wide open. As well as we're gonna take a check-in on that particular weekend about how we're doing financially, about how the future um, of our finances looks as it impacts our ability to do ministry in Portland. Um, so really, really um, great week to be around if you can. I, I would say every week is really great to be around, but the week after is the one I'm most excited about, hence two exclamation points. We're gonna do a family photo. Now, my original vision for this got vetoed. I was thinking like, you ever see those old timey like churches back in like the 1800s where they would like line everyone up in a single file line really, really wide and take a picture of it and like crop it so it's long and narrow. I wanted to do that on the street block out front. And then I got vetoed that that wouldn't actually work. Like we did, like, how do we get the cars out of the way? It's a great point. Um, so instead what we're gonna do on that weekend is we are going to have a shorter gathering time and we're gonna all like go out and land on the stairs out here, the big grand staircase with our kiddos, families, everybody. Um, we have a photographer um, who's a part of our church community and she has agreed generously to give her time and energy to take some great photos. So we want you here. If you, um, if 
you're a part of this church and you view yourself saying, yes, uh, I want to be a part of something that memorializes uh, this core community of what God is growing into a fully fledged, ready to love and serve its neighbors and the city kind of church, come be a part. Uh, we want you here uh, in, that photo- in that photograph. Um, if you know people who aren't going to be here in the next few weeks, tell them, be here on the 27th. The weekend after that um, is our party. Uh, and that's why it ended up being the 3rd of February. I mean, I can't help it, um, but it's cool. Uh, we're going to throw a party, meaning we're going to have food, we're going to have birthday hats, we're going to have uh, whatever else. But most importantly, um, we're going to get out our baptistry and have baptisms. And I just want to challenge you. We'll talk more about this later. But if you um, are at a stage in your journey with Jesus where you're saying, yes, I want to surrender to what God's up to, um, I'd love to, love to talk to you about baptism and what it looks like and why we do it, how it works, etc. We have a brand new baptistry. It's a horse trough. So come and be wowed. Um, it's sitting in the back of my pickup truck right now at my house. And I get all, like my neighbor asked me the other day, what is the pond in the back of your, because it's not like a narrow, like skinny one. It's like this massive, like wide black tub thing. He's like, do you get a new pond? I'm like, no, it's a baptistry. And he's super cool. He's, he's the funniest guy. Not, not, not a follower of Jesus, which is like one of the best parts of our relationship. Like he's like, it just works really, really well. And he's like, that's actually really cool. So uh, that all said, this is, this is what's happening this month. We want you to be a part of it. Uh, we're going to keep putting it out there on social media and on Sundays, reminding you what's going on, but just be a part of celebrating God's goodness here at Church of the City. I'm going to pray just to, again, orient this to, to Jesus, to his goodness, to what he's doing uh, in us and through us and in our city. And I want to invite you, uh, as we, this is our first gathering of this year, 2019, to take this moment um, simply to quiet yourself a bit, to focus your uh, internal direction and orientation back towards Jesus. So let's pray. God, this morning, uh, to think about a new year and think about uh, being a gathered church community in Portland, Oregon, and we are grateful that you are a God who, um, like that song just said, would do anything and everything to pursue people. Um, and we are grateful to be a part of that. We're part of humanity. Um, and as you love humanity, God, it's, it's really challenging at times to, to feel the, the, all the feels of what it's like to know that you love us. Like, there's so many things in the way, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, God, that you, you love us and our minds get in the way and our actions get in the way and our beliefs about ourselves and other people get in the way. And so, God, this morning, I pray that you'd meet us, that you would demonstrate how much you love us, and that, God, as we respond to that again, maybe with just a breath um, of fresh air in our lungs, starting a new year, that we would come to terms with the fact that you love us deeply. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. And, God, as we gather around your scriptures, as we focus our time and energy on what you might be saying to us, I pray you'd meet with us in this moment. Pray this all in your son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so I'm not a big resolution fan either. I don't, I don't do resolutions. I don't think, I can't remember actually doing uh, resolutions hardly at all growing up. Um, I think in the course of my adult life, two or three years, I've resolved to do anything around the new year. Um, but still not, cause, and for me, it's, I'm a contrarian, right? Like I just, I don't really want to do everyone else is doing at the same time everyone else is doing it. So um, it's more appealing to do it on my own terms and like have control and whatever. One of the things a while ago, uh, and by a while ago, uh, as I think about it, it's um, a couple decades ago, 
Um, it happens when you get in your mid-30s and you're like, wow, I was conscious of the world in my teens. That's remarkable. Um, a couple decades ago, um, I came to terms with my own sense of how I wanted and in some ways needed to respond to the world around me. And it came in the form of, um, I, I realized, I was beginning to realize then, that I was really bothered by my own hypocrisy. That trying to be something that I never intended to be was problematic for me. And so it, it became, and I was this way growing up as a, as a child and into my young adult life, and now as an adult, it's becoming more and more the case where um, I, I really value deeply the ability and, and not just the ability, but the actual action of being honest, of, of putting the honest part of me out in front of other people. And that's hugely problematic when on a weekly basis you sit on a stool in front of people. Um, pastors are not notoriously um, transparent about who they are and what they are. And I've been told by leaders around me that it's dangerous as a leader of a located church community, as a pastor who has um, a regular opportunity to speak, to be, to be honest in a way where it might be, it might be detrimental. And by detrimental, I think typically people mean um, to admit to being human, uh, to, being, to being a bit broken or quite a bit broken or sinful or a mess. And as I, as I think on this value system and the way it competes with the social interaction that we have on a regular basis, being here on Sundays, um, if you know anything about me, if you've been around a while, um, I, I, I try my absolute best to, to honestly portray who I am. But there's, there's a huge problem in the mix of all of that. And this is my confession this morning. By the way, um, you're my confessors uh, on a regular basis, whether you want to be or not. Uh, it's personal therapy for me as I engage the moment. Um, I'm a performer. I'm a performer. What I mean by that is I, for as long as I can remember, while having this value of wanting to be honest about who I am, there's a huge part of me that's driven in pleasing the people around me. It's driven by a need to be accepted and validated by other human beings. And so I found myself my whole life putting on performances, trying to look good, trying to make other people believe that I'm good or capable or competent or whatever, whatever it was in the moment that I wanted them to think about me. And directly, that gets in the way of any kind of honest or authentic response, right? Like trying to be something that you're not, or trying to be something you think other people think you ought to be, is not a very honest version of me or of you. It becomes particularly problematic inside of the life of someone trying to follow Jesus. Because there's this competition of, of what motivating factor comes to the forefront. Is it the motiv motivating factor that people around you will like you, the motivating factor that you are keeping in step with what God might have in mind for you. And those oftentimes are very different things. Now, as, as a, a part of the lead team at Church of the City, as our teaching pastor, it is extremely challenging, even in my mid-30s, and this is a part of my journey with Jesus is still being ironed out. It's extremely challenging to have that motivation still be a part of my inner workings. As I look at you, as I interact with you, as I, as I sit on a stool in front of you, as I prepare to teach, as we guide and lead the future of a church community in Portland, there's a, there's a motivating factor inside of me that wants you to like me. 
that wants validation from you, that wants, I, I want to perform for you. Now, I don't think all of that is necessarily bad. However, in the, in the spirit of full disclosure, you have to know it's a part of the mix of me being me. And as I've dug into it over the years, I think there's a, a nut inside of this that has to be cracked that I haven't cracked yet, but I can name it. And the nut is a fundamental view of myself. That I'm not sure I'm actually worth loving as a human being. And so I perform. I put, I put on a show for people to experience a version of me that might be worth loving. Internally, I've got so much of a mess inside of my soul that's still being ironed out by the work of God that I, I can say honestly that I, there are days where I don't honestly believe I'm lovable by humans or by God. And this particular place, this, this, this space in being human where we have beliefs about ourselves, they are the space from which all of our thoughts and all of our feelings and all of our actions flow out of. You see, the core of who we are, our belief system, what we think is true about us and other people and about God, it informs everything about our existence as, as human beings. As I prepared this week for this particular, this particular passage in 1 John, this journey we're going through with this close and intimate friend with Jesus, I was confronted face-to-face -face in a way that I haven't for quite a while with some of my own skeletons, largely revolving around my belief about me. And I share that with you this morning for this reason and this reason only, because this is terrifying to me to tell you all of this, in hopes that you can wrestle with your own skeletons on some meaningful kind of level. See, I don't think I'm alone. I think many of us as human beings walk the streets of Portland, drive in our cars, ride the max, interact with our families, talk to our neighbors with internal beliefs about ourselves that are tragically broken. Because as a pastor, I'm here to tell you that isn't true. It isn't true, Russell, that you're unlovable. You are exactly the opposite. You are lovable. And I'm here to tell you as a group of people, as individuals, you're lovable. But to say that without naming the problem falls tragically short of anything meaningful going forward. And where we find ourselves in this passage is at exactly this location where we have to be brutally honest about what we believe to be true about ourselves. I'm not trying to put on the fake Christian response, of course I'm lovable, of course God loves me, of course people around me like me. Putting that aside for a second, and naming honestly the issue of being human and the self-identity and the valuation and the worth that we have inside of us oftentimes informs the way we interact with the world around us. Now, you might be the, the outlier here. You might be a person who has a lot of internal health. You're well-adjusted, as some might say, and you have a pretty healthy view of yourself. But I think views of ourselves is oftentimes a lot like standing on a yoga ball. We, we fall one way or the other, no matter what you do. We fall to the one side where we have a very low view of ourselves, And so that informs the way we interact with the world. 
Or we fall the other way where we have a very high view of ourselves that's also erroneous and broken and messy, and we interact with the world based on that. Are you tracking with me? Are you seeing what I'm saying here? It is extremely difficult to have a really healthy, and I would put this way, God kind of view of who we are. That's exactly what John is driving at in the particular passage we're looking at today. So here's what I want to do as we lean into this. Is I'd like to give you permission to be the honest version of you. I'd like, you to, I'd like to give you the permission to name where it is you fall in your view of self. And I'd like you to, to be able to do that so that as we look at this particular text, it's brief, it's not very long, that maybe there is something to be done about that view. Maybe there is some amount of health that we can take and move towards, we can take a step into via what John has to say about us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We are in 1 John. Now, I realize many of you don't bring a paper Bible. I'm going to say this anyway. If you did bring a paper Bible, it's near the back of your Bible. If you didn't, we have it for you on the screen, or if you have your phone, you can open that up and check it out. Um, We're in 1 John chapter 2. And just to give you some total of what's going on in this particular uh, writing, this is, again, a letter um, written by one of the most intimate friends with Jesus. A man who, who in flesh and bones, walked alongside Jesus, interacted with him, and, and understood probably more about him than many other people ever did and that lived as contemporaries around Jesus of Nazareth. And as such, as, as he has made this tremendous stride towards writing something to people who didn't interact with Jesus firsthand, we, we live in kind of that in-between. We, we get to insert ourselves in his writing here in this letter in the kind of way where we're hearing the voice of an individual who knew Jesus personally. And from that, if you go back and listen to previous um, teaching this, um, that Sarah and I have done over the last couple of weeks, you'll, you'll understand that he is impassioned to give away his personal experiences with Jesus. He's impassioned to give away his understanding of the way Jesus views the world. And so that's the interaction we have in this text. What we have in this moment is we have John relating as best he can the view of his rabbi, of his friend, of his savior, Jesus. So we're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. These few verses. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because... You know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, on first blush, this particular piece of of scripture, um, even the formatting of it, and I kept the formatting on the screen if you were following along there, if you look in your own text. um, In English, we translate this as a poetic section, and it is. It's, It's written in... Um, this kind of form that reflects uh, kind of a reflective, um, interpretive, almost subjective kind of, of interaction. It's intended to be, um, to, it's intended to elicit some kind of response from us via the form. The fact that there's some repetition to it, there's some, um, some movement to it, there's some rhythm to it, all of that. But I want to point out that um, this particular text uh, utilizes something that you may be uncomfortable with. Uh, if you'll notice, besides dear children, which could go either way, he's addressing 
men, the men of the community that he's writing to. Now, I want to name this, and I want to, I want to, I want to acknowledge it, and I also want to challenge you to, to work through it. Um, what you see in this particular text is typical of a first century patriarchal situation, that the, the address um, publicly to a group of people would be made to the male parts um, predominantly, and it would include the female parts of that community, um, but it, it would typically not name them. Now, if you want more on this, on this particular topic and what scripture, uh, why scripture does it this way and what, how we should handle it, I'd challenge you to go back and listen to our series in the book of Esther because we really dealt with that there. But the short version is this, that remember people, they're, they're living inside of a culture and inside of a bound social environment, meaning all of us are the products of our social environment. John is no different than that. John is living in a first century patriarchal community and he's writing into that particular environment. What we do see in John elsewhere is we see a tremendous amount of, of movement towards equity between the genders and his appreciation for that. And I don't think here he's subjugating women and saying you're not a part of this. In fact, I think just the opposite. In the context of a first century ancient Near East culture, he is doing what is expected to be inclusive of all people, to include people in the in, in, in what his words actually are here. And what he's actually doing here is he's saying to the whole community, you need to know why I'm writing to you. You need to know what it is that's going on, the reason that I'm writing to you. So I put this on, on a slide and I want to put it on the screen. And I want to talk through it for a second. I also made a cool rainbow out of it. So that's kind of fun. I was trying to figure out a way to like differentiate these because people get lost in big blocks of text. So I'm trying to help you out here by helping you see there are different lines here. But there are six different stanzas, or six different lines in two stanzas of this poetic section where John names why he's writing. But as he gets into why he's writing, what it's actually saying, what he's actually saying, is he's saying what is true about you and about me and about the Christian community. He's saying what's true from the viewpoint of God, from his close friend Jesus, as he relates it to the people he's writing to, he's naming a reality of what is true about us. And what John sees is he sees several things. First, he sees that your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That that is the truth of who you are. That is what you are. That you know him who is from the beginning. That you've overcome the evil one that you actually know the Father, that you know Him who's from the beginning, and that you are strong, and the Word of God lives in you, and you've overcome the evil one. You see, when we, when we kind of put this together and we can see what John's motives are, what we see at the core of his writing is he has a very rich and very positive view of the people he's writing to. And I think what he's trying to do here, more than just give the reason why he writes, I think he's trying to name the broken parts of who we are. Because quite frankly, this is not the typical view of ourselves as human beings, let alone as Christians. For many of us, we don't feel what John is saying is actually true. We feel something else. We sense something else. We think something else. We believe something else about ourselves. And before we, we press into that issue, let me just put this in front of you. 
the view that God has of you is so high, is so rich, is so deep. And yes, it's entirely dependent upon the work of Jesus. That Jesus has done things on your behalf to love you really, really well before you're even aware of what he's done and who he is. And nonetheless, his actions have changed who you actually are in this kind of way. What John is trying to say to the Christian community is there is something true of you that has already happened. It's It's an accomplished fact. This is reality. This is your identity. You are someone who's been forgiven. You are someone who knows who God is. You are someone who is strong. Now, I realize, I fundamentally realize, this is a very challenging situation. So let me just put a few of these out in front of us for a second in order to to deal with this. We need to deal with John's view of us. And at first, it, it, it seems kind of obvious, right? The first one, we don't actually feel this way about ourselves very often. Even as people who have followed Jesus for some time or, or dabbling with following Jesus, this isn't a typical way we would express who we are, is it? Most of us don't go around kind of flouting the fact that we're strong in the Lord and you know, we're, we're people who are forgiven and we know Jesus really well. That isn't typically the way we express ourselves or portray ourselves to other human beings, even inside of a Christian community. And we can name that. We can own that. That John's view of us oftentimes is very different than our view of us. And yet John is trying to to unwedge us from our broken perspectives, trying to disturb us a little bit, trying to get us to think more clearly or more honestly, more accurately about the way God views us in hopes of actually changing our own views of who we are. But secondly, more than just I may not feel that way, this might be true of you, that you aren't that into Jesus in the first place. And all this is kind of contingent on you being into Jesus. Kind of contingent on the fact that you have said, I am following that individual. The God who showed up in flesh and bones, who walked on earth, who walked in my dust, who came and gave himself lovingly on my behalf and conquered the brokenness of humanity with his very life. And you might say, I'm not, I'm not really a, like, into that right now. And legitimately, that, that is true for, for quite a few people who interact on a regular basis with our church community. However, the opportunity is always in front of us. The way that John names this of what's true of us, that we are people who are forgiven, people who know God intimately, people who are strong in that intimate knowledge and intimate relationship with God, it's always an opportunity for us. To say, yes, I want that. I want to be a part of that with the God who created me. So even if today you're not confident of the fact that you want any of this, it's all right. I welcome you to be exposed to it. I welcome you to see it and to know what you'd be getting into if, in fact, you want to follow Jesus. But above all of that, I think there's a a bigger problem. Even if it's true, even if this is the accurate version of who we are, we still make big mistakes and make a mess out of life. See, oftentimes in Scripture, it names who we are. It says you are children of God, you are loved, you are worth it, all those things. 
And we hear those things like on a Sunday morning or in a, the time when we're reading scripture on our own or something or a friend tells us. And then we leave that place immediately and we go right back to participating in the broken, messy existence that we've created for ourselves. And oftentimes it feels like there's just such a big discrepancy between the two that it doesn't really matter. Like, yeah, they said some nice things about me at church, but I'm still this, this person who's a mess, who's broken, who, who's still trying but not succeeding very often at living up to that new identity. And I think it's at this particular juncture that John's next words become extremely important. And I want you to pay attention to this part. This identity issue, it's there and you've known it. You've known that God loves you really, really well and you feel like you don't deserve it. Or you feel like you don't need it. Or you feel like your mess is so big and so regular that there's no opportunity to actually be a part of this goodness that God's giving away. But look, look closely at this next, this next section. Just a few more verses as John speaks directly into this particular scenario. Pick it up in verse 15. John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. I grew up uh, later elementary school around the church. My family wasn't um, early in my life a church that, or a family that went to church or uh, were Christians at all. My mom uh, took my sister and I to, uh, to Sunday school when I was in kindergarten and first grade uh, simply because she wanted to get some morality on her kids. I think we were pretty bad uh, is the point with that. And, and as such, there are these passages that as I, I started hearing uh, growing up uh, in, in and around Christians and in the church um, that stuck out to me. And this was one of them, I think. And I was trying to go back and find it, and I, I couldn't. I think this is one that I even memorized when I was in junior high, um, this particular few verses. It's one that Christians um, we use a lot. There's a lot of writing on this particular, uh, particular verse because it's, it's really pretty clear and pretty helpful in a lot of ways. On first blush, it's, it's simply saying that we have a decision to make where it is that we choose to live our life, who it is we choose to follow. The world around us, which is um, a broken, messy place, or the God who inserted himself into that mess and said, I have a better way. And it's pretty clear what is being said here, that there are issues that would prevent us from following Jesus really well. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life, some total what that means is all the broken baggage that you and I possess, all the internal wants we have, all the things that aren't in line with the teachings and the example and the hope of Jesus. And there's a competition going on in the world and inside of us and around us and in our church community. Do we follow all of those things that are broken and messy? Or do we apply ourselves to trying our absolute best to follow the ways of Jesus? Now, I could you know, put a lot of emphasis on this and say, you know, now it's time for us to you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do a better job following Jesus and say no to the world more often. And I actually think that's absolutely appropriate. I think this verse lends itself to that kind of teaching. 
However, I think there's more here than just that. I think there's more than just saying, don't be a bad person, be a good person, coming out of what John's trying to communicate here. Remember, John has just gotten off this long section where he's naming, there's more to you than meets the eye. And what Jesus has done is he's rewritten your story. Your identity isn't as broken as you think it is. It's more whole, more complete, more good than you thought it was. So now what? If that's true of you, then what will you do? Who will you be? And yeah, he puts it out there. Okay, you get, you get a choice now. The opportunity is yours. What are you going to do with it? But in this last line of this, of this section, is so captivating. It just holds my attention but not for the obvious reason, I don't think. But read that last line again. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You know, when I first read that when I was a child, my belief was I had to be good so that I would get into heaven. That was my belief structure. And verses like this seems to undergird that, right? Like, don't follow the world, follow God, and if you do, you will live forever. And yet, if we look at what John experienced in the life of Jesus and what John writes through his writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, what we see is we see an entirely different story. What we see Jesus doing is he comes into the world and he says, the kingdom is here in, in, in the world right now. He has come bring it because the king has arrived, hope has arrived, love has arrived, forgiveness has arrived, life has arrived. Not in the great someday. And you look through the whole storyline of what John writes down about Jesus, and that is the sum total. Over and over and over again, Jesus gives life away to people in real time. Not saying, now I really hope this works out for you. I'll see you on the other side. Let's go. He doesn't do that. He says, I am here. I am life. I am the way. And he gives it right then to people. You see, I think what John is, is reflecting here is the opportunity is ours to enjoy and engage real life now. And it points us back towards this identity he just got off of. That if we're going to be people who live as intended by the design of the God who made us, then we need to look back at what he's hoping for to become true of us and apply ourselves to that. So I'm struck, and as I think on this, it propels me to go back to these identity statements he just made. And to begin to pour over them, to reflect on them, to internalize them, and to aim at them. You see, when John says that you are forgiven, I don't always feel that way. But part of living, part of choosing God and not choosing my broken, messy existence, is aiming at being a person who understands, who knows, and who lives as if I'm forgiven. Because I'm so worth loving. When John says that we are people who are strong because of our commitment to the words of Jesus, the word of God, then I want that to be true of me. And so living looks like me applying myself to that, to pouring over the life of Jesus, internalizing it, letting it do its work in my soul and in my life and in my actions. See, the opportunity isn't just do good, don't do bad. The opportunity, the third kind of way between those two is to lean into Jesus. To let him begin to give direction and purpose and meaning to your existence. 
to define your identity by who he is, by what he's done. See, this is the core of the gospel, you guys. It isn't this behavior modification. It isn't church attendance. It is us finding new identity because God has named it that. He has named that you are worth loving. And he's extended himself. He's moved into our story so that we have access to his hope, to his goodness, to what he wants out of us and for us, which is his good. This year, as we move into 2019, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. This year, of all years, please put down your belief that God just wants you to be a better person, to be more moral. He wants to just change your behaviors. He doesn't. He wants you to change your identity. He wants you to allow him to change your identity. See, over and over and over again, this is the story of Scripture, is people putting out in front of themselves these, these grandiose plans to just do a little bit better in life. And the story of Scripture is humans have just made a mess of that task. We're not good at doing that. But what God is particularly good at is stepping into that mess of our lives and rewriting the story and saying it's not true of you that you are as broken and messy as you think you are. What is true of you is because I have loved you because I've given you the opportunity of love and grace and hope is that you are a new person. So in 2019, here's my challenge. Begin to live into that identity. Live into that identity that God sees you as someone who's worth loving and apply yourself towards it. Yes, I believe in eternity. I do believe that what John's talking about here extends on into the future indefinitely. But living starts now, not in the great someday. And only you get to choose. Do you lean into life today? Now, I want to put this out in front of you because this is coming uh, down the road for us. Is on a regular basis, we, we give the opportunity for people to, to make a, a pretty radical choice in their world that yes, this is what they want, this is what you want out of your life. The end of, of this month, kind of, February 3rd, we're going to have baptisms here at Church of the City. Now again, we rent the space, we don't have a regular baptistry, I would love that, I would love the opportunity every single week to say, hey, if you want to come and be a part and give life, give your life into the life of Jesus, fantastic, let's do that. We don't always have that. We have the river. It's always running. We've baptized quite a few people there. Um, even in January, we've done it. So that's always an opportunity. We have church friends in the neighborhood that will let us use their baptistries. It's always an opportunity. But it is particularly powerful with our church community to say, yes, I'm in. This is my identity. This is what I want out of life. So I want to prepare you. Maybe you're at a spot where you're thinking, yeah, I want this identity. I want this to be true of me. And I, I need to lean in a little bit. I'd love to talk to you. Send me an email, talk after church, whatever is most comfortable for you. But I want to challenge you that 2019, it could be the most amazing year of your life, particularly if we can lay down this behavior-modified kind of belief about what faith is 
and pick up this view that God really cares deeply about us and wants to change our identities. Let's pray together. God, I'm grateful for these people. I'm grateful that they they are humans who are choosing to spend a little bit of time together, God, as we try to follow you as best we can. I'm grateful that we, we have the opportunity to gather and a lot of hurdles that would be in the way that would keep us away from this space and this time from sharing the same air. And yet today, here we are, gathered together around you. I got my prayer, my hope. It's the same as John's. I got we would see ourselves more accurately than ever before. And because of that accuracy, because of the view that you have of us, that God, we would be different people. We begin to apply ourselves to your goodness, to living your ways, to adopting life. God, I'm grateful for this church, and I'm excited about this community and what you're doing in it. I pray a blessing over this year. I pray a blessing over these people. God, I pray a blessing over this city. We want more and more and more of your goodness to come. So God, show us. Show us how we can be a part of it. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving this city. Thank you for loving our neighbors. We are so grateful. Pray in your name. Amen.